to Short Reverse Shot. Um, I'm Matt Risby, hello, uh, and joining me as always uh, is Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Yeah, doing very well and currently enjoying a nice cup of tea whilst uh, Gus Van Zandt's Psycho plays in the background, which uh, is interesting and incredibly sterile. Mm, it's quite a kind of uh, uh, interesting cultural document that in years to come, uh, kind of baffled uh, generations will look at it and go, "What? Why did they do this?" Mm, yeah, I think they'll certainly look at it, and I think it's interesting to compare specific actors. For example, if you were to say to me, "Who is the epitome of kind of nervous, nervous, nervous bashfulness?" Uh, Vince Vaughn would not be in my top like a thousand actors <laughs> who I would mm. suggest for that role, and yet he plays Norman Bates and is a little too physically imposing <laughs> to really convince of someone who uh, isn't a killer. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, Vince Vaughn in real life is like eight feet tall. Mm. Um, and uh, Anthony Perkins was, you know, not really that. He was a kind of a someone who could kind of skulk around in the shadows and, and be kind of unassuming. Whereas Vince Vaughn, um, the star of old school um, and dodgeball and those kind of things, um, perhaps, you know, I'm not going to say that actors can't, you know, display a range, but I don't know, perhaps not Vince Vaughn. He he makes every film he works on a kind of miniature version of Lord of the Rings. Mm. Everyone has to try and make him look normal size next to all the tiny people. Mm, absolutely. I think we might have started an unnecessary rumour that, that Vince Vaughn is freakishly tall. I don't know if he's as tall as Liam Neeson, who I think is the tallest man in the world. Uh, they ha- I don't think they've been in a film together, uh, so hopefully they can do like a very flat, even-keeled shot of them. Maybe Wes Anderson can just put them in a film very mm. kind of symmetrically opposed so we can just finally know which one of them is truly the world's tallest man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, those two are one and two in the rankings currently, uh, which is uh, a shame they didn't either pursue a career in the NBA, uh, which would have been interesting. Um, anyway, uh, we've got uh, you know, maybe a bit of an apology to start off with uh, this week. Um, kind of regular listeners will know that we're at Shot Reverse Shot do... Um, kind of like a bit of research every time we we record and um, we generally like to keep our episodes around a particular theme no matter how kind of loose uh, that is or how structured the idea is uh, we generally like to keep it kind of uh, anchored to an idea as such but um and it was bound to happen given that we've now kind of moved to kind of weekly recording that we'd come across a week that we'd perhaps not have anything ready um, you know, in this instance, we've got, you know, like three shows in a row coming up that require quite a lot of heavy research. And I think the last three, um, you know, required a certain amount of kind of homework. Um, so this one's kind of fallen between the cracks. Um, and we'd like to do something that we've never done before. We should just talk for half an hour about whatever's on our mind, um, what's been irking us uh, this week or what we've kind of discovered or, you know, what's in the news of films. It might sound like a lame idea. Um, and if you're not into that, then you know, I apologise. Uh, come back next week. Um, but this week, this is what we've got, and this is what we're going to go with a kind of completely kind of freeform jazz uh, film podcast experiment. Um, so, with that in mind, Ed, what's on your mind currently? Uh, the main thing on my mind currently is uh, the big 
but kind of the big story of the week for me and a lot of my friends was the death of Terry Pratchett. Mm. Um, I was a, I was always a huge fan of Terry Pratchett since I was a teenager. I loved the Discworld books, loved Good Omens. Um, I first discovered his work when I was 12 and we had to do a kind of a reading in class of Johnny and the Dead, which is one of his, I think, probably lesser known stories about a young boy who befriends a bunch of ghosts in a cemetery. And um, I, I loved it because I got to be an Italian ghost and I got to talk like it is. And I wow. really kind of threw myself into it. No one else did any voices, but I kept doing a really broad and silly Italian accent. Uh, and it was probably one of the best weeks of school I, uh, I ever had in sort of year seven because <laughs> it just consisted of me making everyone in the entire class laugh every time I did this ridiculous voice. But, um, did, did you then have to go undergo kind of like three weeks of cultural sensitivity training afterwards? Uh, no, because uh, no one cares about Italy, so, <laughs> so it's fine. Um, but you know, he he's obviously been ill for a very long time. He was diagnosed with early onset um, Alzheimer's in two thousand and seven, I think. So he's he's we, everyone's known he's been ill for for a very long time, the better part of a decade, and it wasn't. It was the same sort of thing as with Leonard Nimoy's death, where it wasn't really a shock because you think you know both of them, you know, sort of fairly old and in, in, in and in sort of ill health, but it was still uh, it was still very sad. Um, mm. uh, and in the case of Terry Pratchett, you know, he wrote a lot of great books. He, uh, for me, certainly uh, some of them helped shape my sense of humor and my general philosophy and outlook on life. And I think. He was someone who was very important in introducing me to ideas of like humanism and just kind of being very accepting of people as often as much as possible. Um, so he had a great body of work behind him, but because he died so young from a disease that you know essentially took his mind away from him in the last year or so of his life, uh, it's just kind of really heartbreaking. Um, you're talking to someone here who has never read a word of Terry Pratchett mm-hmm. um, because I don't know whether. Like I'd always, I think now wrongly assumed that um, Terry Pratchett's books were kind of aimed squarely at people who probably work in IT and they're called Keith. Um, <laughs> um, I kind of, I've always kind of like dodged them a little bit, but in kind of seeing um, kind of the outpouring of uh, kind of affection in the, after he passed away this week from pretty much everyone I know. I'm starting to think that maybe I've uh, I've uh, misjudged Mr. Pratchett's oeuvre. Yeah, they do give off that sense. I think part of the problem is the covers, the uh, designs for them, which were always they were kind of mocking fantasy tropes, but to the extent that they always just looked like they were really nerdy fantasy books. Mm. And whereas they were, you know, initially very direct parodies of them, they he would take particular ideas from fantasy like making fun of Conan the Barbarian and, and characters like that and just kind of riff on them but uh, as the Discworld series certainly as it went on it uh, became kind of more richer and a, a location for him to kind of satirize any part of culture and life that he wanted to so some ep- some parts would be about rock and roll some of them would be uh, such as the book Small Gods for it, about uh, religion which was uh, and that's I think one of the really great novels exploring why people choose to believe in things and how the religious desire to believe in a a higher power is you know kind of noble even though people may uh, use it to kind of nefarious ends and I think a lot of people said uh, in the kind of few days after his death cited that as one of the best 
examples of an atheist writing kind of very compassionately about religion, even at the same time kind of saying, yeah, there's an awful lot of this stuff I don't agree with, but I understand why people want to believe in this sort of thing. In terms of this being a film podcast, mm -hmm. um, is there is there like any kind of uh, Pratchett stuff that exists on film? I know that he, they did some TV uh, stuff of his. Um, it, I don't think there is. Is there any films of his stuff? Not that I can think of, no. There's the TV movies that Sky did, which are kind of terrible. I mean, the first one, Hogfather, is pretty good because it's a fairly straightforward story, kind of a Christmas story with kind of creepy horror, horror elements, so it's very easy to uh, to put across. But I think the problem with his writing and his tone is that most of the humour isn't in like the dialogue or the story. It's just in the descriptions or the footnotes. He used to have kind of copious very funny uh, footnotes going on in the background and just kind of expanding on the things that he found interesting in the story. So mm. it was never, if you would, as happened with those Sky movies, when you try and boil that down to just this happens in this scene, this character says this funny thing, it just ends up being really uh, kind of, it looks really simple and doesn't have quite the verve that his, his work should have. So if I were to um, investigate Mr. Pratchett's work um, as a complete virgin, where, where on earth should I start? I'd probably start with Good Omens, which is the one that he co-wrote with uh, Neil Gaiman, mm -hmm. which is, a, is, is also, from a film perspective, it's great because it's a very funny riff on The Omen and the, the whole plot of you know a satanic child being born, but the idea being that the, instead of going with the American ambassadors, he ends up just growing up in rural England and just ends up being quite a nice young boy. Mm. Um, and then the apocalypse starts happening and everyone's a bit confused as to why. For example, the hellhound that is sent after him, instead of becoming this kind of vicious, uh, horrible mastiff that goes around mauling people, just becomes a puppy and mm. just kind of like enjoys following around and playing with sticks and things. Um, that one's very good. In terms of Discworld, probably the best entryway would be Guards, Guards, which is his uh, the first in the series he wrote about the... Uh, the Night's Watch, which is the basically the underfunded, uh, uncared-about uh, uh, police force of Ankh-Morpork, the, the kind of central city-slash-analogue for London that uh, forms the backdrop for most of the adventures. Uh, it's one of the more fun, and it introduces the character of Sam Vimes, who is his, his best character, just a really uh, funny but crotchety police chief, basically. I've got a beef this week. Sure. Um, it's uh, essentially the kind of fallout from all this Ghostbusters business, um, which has kind of upset me because um, what has happened is they wanted to reboot Ghostbusters. They've been like, you know, fanning around for ages. Didn't seem like they could get it together with the old guard. Uh, Bill Murray was the holdout, even though everyone else uh, wanted to do it, but then when Harold Ramis died, they were like, well, maybe it's never going to happen, and then they were like, well, what about a new generation of Ghostbusters, and then someone hit upon the great idea when uh, they hired Paul Feig, uh, and, uh, you know, it was rumoured for a while that he would do an all-female version, um, and then it got announced, and they were doing it, and everyone was really excited about it, and then about a week later, uh, basically the, the internet's uh, kind of tendency uh, to bring out the worst kind of like uh, entitled kind of whinging man babies uh, <laughs> were complaining about having their childhoods ruined. Um, despite the fact that, let's not forget, there's been two Ghostbusters films and one of them's fucking terrible. 
Um, uh, and it was, yeah, pretty kind of embarrassing to see. Um, but not quite as embarrassing as the news this week uh, that Sony have announced that they're going to do a male Ghostbusters. Now, this might be a part of some kind of big, grand universe-building uh, shindig uh, that they're kind of planning to kind of carry on every year and kind of, uh, you know, build this kind of huge cinematic universe of Ghostbusters, which, you know, seems stupid. Um, or it could be seen as a bit of a reaction to the negative reaction of people who are saying, my childhood's been ruined by having girls in it. Yeah, I think it's probably a mixture of both, but I think it definitely seems to be leaning more towards the latter. I know that mm. Darkroyd has been saying for ages he wants to do it as a Marvel-style shared universe thing, which is, you know, like you say, the Ghostbusters concept barely sustained one film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, the, and you know, sort of worked in a cartoon series and then didn't work at all in a second film. And the idea of them spreading out and creating multiple films on it just it seems you know, patently ridiculous. And I think that this feels like them going, you know, we're hedging our bets, really. If the first, uh, this, the, the all-female Ghostbusters doesn't work, then we can just put out a uh, a male one to appease everyone and that just seems like like you say the worst tendencies of the internet being sated mm. is it like um just the kind of like the way everything goes now like if you think about who owns things like disney now owns pretty much everything disney owns disney disney owns pixar disney owns marvel disney owns a whole bunch of stuff like and that's pretty much how capitalism works you keep going until one thing owns everything. Now, like, just to kind of keep going and, and making things, kind of uh, providing a built-in audience for things and kind of product familiarity, will it just get to the point where everything is one giant cinematic universe owned by Disney? It definitely feels like the natural, like we could end up in a place where that whole thing about how all TV shows exist inside the head of that autistic boy from St. Elsewhere because mm. characters from St. Elsewhere went into all other shows and Munch from uh, Homicide appeared in like 12 different shows, so they're all connected. It definitely feels like at some point we'll get there where, you know, uh, or, or like, you know, the, the whole speech that Patton Oswalt gave in, uh, in Parks and Recreation about Star Wars and Marvel uh, crossing over, that definitely seems like uh, the end point will be, you know, when you're little and you have lots of different toys and you make you know, action man fight Han Solo, you know, eventually mm. it could reach that point. Um, I definitely feel like commercially that seems to be what everyone, what everyone wants a shared universe. Everyone wants, that's, they look at what Marvel have done and that's what DC are trying to do. They're not just going to do separate films. They're going to have characters cross over because I think it seems sort of like a financially sound way of doing things because what you're doing is having films that can feed each other's success in the way that all the Marvel films leading up to the Avengers did, and then the Avengers made all of them kind of go into hyperdrive or whatever, and they all became more successful. But, mm. you know, I think Marvel have done that very well. DC, it, wait, it remains to be seen whether or not they can do it, but I think they haven't got the kind of light touch so far based on Man of Steel and its uh, genocide <laughs> or, or, mm. or everything, that all the millions of people who died in it... Um, and I I just don't see there are that there are many properties that can sustain that uh, outside of things like Marvel and DC where you have lit, like nearly a century's worth of stories to kind of play off on. 
Mm. And it's like weird that like uh, things like Men in Black and uh, Twenty One Jump Street, mm. uh, which are both owned by by Sony, are being kind of thrown around as as kind of potential crossover slash universe building, and just like at what? Uh huh. Yeah, you can kind of see think. Okay, I can see how that works in terms of their respective tones, because mm. they're both comedies I guess <laughs> they both have kind of police characters in it uh, but outside of that it just seems really weird that you would have those fight each other as opposed to something like Freddy versus Jason which definitely seems like one of the uh, ancestors to this whole idea where you have two characters who exist in entirely separate horror universes um, uh, Freddy Krueger obviously lives in one of magic and uh, and dream warriors and things like that and uh, Jason who lives in something that's sort of like the real world obviously in one film he fights a girl with psychic powers but mm-hmm. that's that's still not quite in the same realm as all the crazy shit that Freddy gets up to um, uh, but because they're horror icons they think okay we can have them match up and fight each other um, you think that sort of makes sense but when you do get to things like suggesting that Men in Black and 21 Jump Street cross over, it just starts to seem uh, really bizarre. Mm. Especially seeing as like 21 Jump Street is a uh, fairly profane R-rated uh, kind of comedy and Men in Black is uh, pretty much good, clean fun. Yeah, they say shit in the first film a couple of times and that's more or less it. And the mm. rest of the time it's reasonably kind of family friendly. So you'd either have to tone down 21 Jump Street a lot <laughs> or yeah. they'd have to add swearing into a universe that's otherwise seemed fairly clean mm. oh, there'll be a hilarious scene where Tommy Lee Jones finds out that Will Smith fucks with Rip Torn's daughter <laughs> uh, and it kind of uh, uh, turns out to be one of the funniest things you've ever seen <laughs> um, but yeah I generally think it's it's like a nonsense and, and, and this whole kind of you know universe building thing is uh, I mean, it's, I, I worry about it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like to be the ultimate kind of padding, really. But to do it with things that aren't even a universe just seems just totally fucking lame to me. Yeah, it definitely see, feels like we're being given an insight into the kind of pitch sessions that are going on in Hollywood. That was kind of one of the things with the Sony email hack that I think was why people not in the industry or even people who were just kind of in the press were so excited about it all was that you know you get to see the crazy ideas being thrown around and I think that those ideas they're obviously quite funny to hear or to read in in writing but then to hear that someone's going to implement them it starts to get a little uh, worrying and crass and cynical Um, Mm -hmm. and obviously like I don't know you you could maybe you'd end up with a great film from those kind of things but it's not not really uh doesn't give you much hope when you can clearly see they're going oh we have these two comedy franchises that don't really have a huge amount similar in tone or rating let's just mash them together and see what happens Mm. and i do keep thinking about ghostbusters 2 in all this (laughs) because that's as everyone's last experience with ghostbusters and that film's bad that film's very bad um i mean it's got that bobby brown song Mm -hmm. in it um, which was all right when I was 11. Um, and uh, the painting that came to life was pretty creepy. Um, but there's not a great deal of ghosting Ghostbusters do, is there? No. Uh, there's a tiny bit of busting, but... 
Yeah, really and not. the stupid, stupid dancing <laughs> Statue of Liberty, which which uh, marches into New York and hits uh, a big blob-covered museum with its torch. That's how it ends, I believe. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's been a very long time since I've seen it. I remember just watching it and thinking, they're really trying to recreate a lot of the things that from the first one, aren't they? But not as well. Uh, not mm. as surprising. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you kind of overlook a lot of kind of writing and big... Um, Kind of studio films, but uh, Sigourney Weaver's character is is a is a concert cellist in the first one, mm-hmm. um, and like a good one, she's in like the New York Philharmonic. She, you know, she's a big deal. But in the second one, she she restores old paintings. Yeah, I think that might be one of those instances where they had like a separate script kicking around for something else, and then they thought we want to make a Ghostbusters sequel. Let's just kind of retrofit it to this. Mm, no sh- way, no but... shit. <laughs> In the same way that uh, all but I think all but one of the sequels to Die Hard started off as a separate script entirely, and then they just decided to make it a Die Hard sequel. Mm. I don't know what the second one was, Die Hard, but I know that Die Hard with the Vengeance was a Lethal Weapon. Um, yes, a sequel, wasn't it? Hence why he suddenly got a black sidekick. Yeah, um, I think the second one may have been based on an entirely separate novel, mm. and they just changed it to John McClane. The fourth one. Definitely was some pre-existing cyber terrorism plotline that they they just decided to put him in it and give him his grown-up daughter to be kidnapped and to not really do anything else. And then the fifth one, I think, was the only one that was actually directly written as a sci- as a as a die-hard sequel and uh, was awful. So clearly, mm. uh, they got reasonably lucky with the first. Well, the first two, the fourth one's not much good either, but it's better than the fifth one. Yeah, um, and I think uh, fact fans, um, the Die Hard, Die Hard, the film is based on a book. I think is it called Detective? I think I can't remember what it's called anyway, but it's, it's a book. Um, but they took the book and they were trying to adapt that to be a sequel to Commando, the Arnold Schwarzenegger mm. film. And when that couldn't work out for whatever reason, they decided to go the other way with it. Um, so yeah, that could have been awful because uh, um, not a lot of subtlety in John Matrix's actions. Um, uh, from the film Commando, I don't know how he would have dealt with a, a kind of delicate hostage situation. Uh, he'd probably just gone in there, throwing kind of saw blades around, <laughs> trying to <laughs> you know, just kind of killing everyone inside and making quips about it. Um, but yeah, um, what else is uh, uh, kind of in your noggin this week? Well, yesterday I used a two-hour block to catch up on the HBO series Looking. Mm-hmm. Um, the second season, which I've been very much enjoying, but I just haven't had a chance to watch it, so I watched four episodes in a row, and mm. I, it got me thinking that HBO have kind of, because they've got a current block, which has just recently ended because Togetherness just finished, but they had a block of girls looking in Togetherness, which are created by Lena Dunham, Andrew Hay, and the Duplass brothers, respectively. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting that they've essentially got a night where all three shows are created by people who started in in feature filmmaking and particularly in kind of low-budget indie filmmaking and how they've all created shows with very kind of simpatico tones and styles. They're all shows that have uh, not really... Hu- they're not hugely plot-driven. It's more about characters and mood than anything else, which is why uh, I could watch four episodes of Looking in a Row and it didn't feel like... A huge amount happened in any of them, but at the end of it, you could kind of see how things had moved on for the characters. 
and I thought it was interesting that all those shows seem to be very much structured as long films rather mm. than as uh, sitcoms. I think it's it's interesting how you always get these, and especially in American TV, uh, those kind of complementary blocks of programming. Mm. Uh, we've talked before about the, the, the you know the, the now what now seems kind of legendary uh, four way uh, kind of community uh, Parks and Rec, Office, Thirty Rock uh, lineup on a Thursday night, um, uh, and you got a lot of that with Comedy Central uh, going on now. Uh, is that so much of a thing on cable? It appears to be, if that's the lineup on a particular night. It's definitely becoming more of the, more of a case as, as more cable channels are producing more shows. I think originally you would have more. You would have things like you know when AMC got into the original programming game, their main criteria for choosing like to develop a series was how well does this complement our the kind of films that we show because obviously they were a movie channel mm. and that's why one of the reasons they went for uh, Mad Men as one of their choices was it seemed to fit with the kind of 60s shows that they, uh, films they would be showing and uh, since then they've kind of moved more into the idea of just creating uh, commissioning shows that could be of a certain quality and that don't really fit in any particular uh, brand other than being AMC shows you know, mm. prob- probably about dark anti-heroes or zombies, which are the kind of their two, their two main uh, sources of revenue at this point. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely something that ha- is is more important on network shows, just because they have more time to fill. They can't just have, you know, an evening be made a, a, an evening's programming be two films and then one hour long drama. They've got to fill. An entire day's worth of programming, so that's why they try and find stuff that feels complementary. Which is why Fox, for you know, very for many years, had uh, an animation block on Sundays. So it'd be The Simpsons, Family Guy, at one point King of the Hill, uh, and then various people trying to replace it until Bob's Burgers came along and finally gave them another show they could put on. Mm. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting how. Um, a lot of those kind of, without wanting to say the word again, mumblecore uh, kind of filmmakers have, have found a spot on television. Um, I mean, it's again uh, no longer we've gone over this many times. It's no longer seen as a, a step down to work on television, especially if you're working on something like HBO. Um, it's you know an opportunity to have as much uh, kind of free reign as possible. And I think after a show that we both liked, we saw last year, Transparent, it was on Amazon. Um, I think the woman who is it Jill Soloway, I think, is the person who that's wrote, right, yeah. uh, wrote and directed that show. She was the showrunner on that. She basically said that uh, cable television and, and kind of uh, uh, all this kind of new television that's happening, it's basically uh, the kind of indie auteur's paradise. You can definitely see that in the case of Lena Dunham um, because obviously she made Tiny Furniture, which was in the same sort of milieu as girls and had the same sort of tone and a similar kind of stories, but that was, you know, one 90 minute film. And since then we're on the fourth season of girls now. So she's had, you know, sort of probably about 10 times that amount of time in which to tell those sort of stories about characters within that world and different, uh, different stories, different ideas that she can explore and different characters. So you get a real sense that she is being given the opportunity to explore things 
on a weekly basis and you know every year that she probably wouldn't be able to do in in film because it'd be so much harder to put together a, a new feature film every year or every couple of years than to basically say okay this season we're going to do this mm. yeah totally um i think it's like interesting to see um just how many films are being kind of repurposed as tv shows mm. um and you know it's I'm not saying that Tiny Furniture and any of the, the Duplass brothers or Weekend have been kind of repurposed to TV shows, but you know, they're using television as an idea as a as a medium with which to kind of explore similar themes. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, yesterday I found out they're doing three days of the Condor is now gonna be a TV show. Mm. Um that actually is quite exciting because uh Three Days of the Condor, for those of you who don't know, is a uh a kind of much overlooked uh and generally quite kind of often forgotten uh, brilliant kind of 70s uh, uh, kind of paranoia thriller. Uh, Robert Redford is a kind of, uh, uh, I think he works for the CIA. Uh, yeah, he's like an analyst. He, he takes like the worst lunch break of all time when he comes back and <laughs> everyone's been murdered and uh, they're after him next and he has to kind of find out why and what's going on and it was very briefly going to be featured on the uh, Alternate 100 but he got bumped for Mean Girls <laughs> um, <laughs> because uh, we realised we don't have any teen movies on there plus uh, we'd already had Parallax View on the week before, but um, uh, I think uh, Three Days of the Condor would make a pretty decent TV show if they got uh, some decent talent on board. It could, yeah. I think it, it would work great as a mini-series. I'm not sure how well it could work as a uh, a long-running television show unless they're going to have the uh, Redford character being reassigned to different places where everyone gets killed <laughs> mm. every every year, um, although that, that could be uh, grimly funny in its own right. Yeah. They'd have to say, look, we've got to stop hiring this Redford guy because <laughs> every time he goes out, you know, for lunch, <laughs> everyone <laughs> cops it in kind of horrible ways. Um, but yeah, they, like I'd say, there's like an awful lot of uh, films that are, like have just put, kind of been worked backwards into into TV, like like and just kind of ones that you you wouldn't think of. Well, you know, the world's crying out for a TV adaptation of like uh, Limitless. The film yeah, that came out a few years ago, one. Bradley Cooper, that's now a TV show. Or Minority Report, which actually kind of makes sense in the the world that they create there and, and the idea of pre-crime and people being able to solve crimes before they happen, they happen has potential to be a very interesting sci-fi conceit. Mm. But even though it's kind of negated by the film because you see, oh yeah, this actually is a horrible idea and it's going to end have terrifying ethical and moral ramifications mm. yeah i think it would make a very interesting kind of case of the week uh show but then yeah with a kind of cool kind of overriding conspiracy thing going on but we've kind of seen behind the curtain now we kind of know what's going on unless they're going to drastically change the world yeah i think i read a report saying that it was gonna it was being intended as a sequel so the idea would be that the Tom Cruise character would solve crimes with one of the uh, the precogs, but they wouldn't be in that vat. You know, they'd still have that. She'd still have. So essentially, it's just you know the latest in a long line of psychic cop shows, mm-hmm. of which there've been quite a few in recent years, um, and, and that that's fine. But it gets to that point where you think the only reason that it's called Minority Report is that's a name people know, yeah. as opposed to being like an entirely new concept. Well. A reworking of an old concept of a you know psychic uh, psychic cop. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else you got? Ed? 
Uh, today, on the day that we're recording, which is Sunday, there's been interesting news in relation to another HBO show, The Jinx, which I've been enjoying um, and kind of disturbed by. Um, the Jinx, for people who don't know, um, is a documentary series in which uh, Andrew Jarecki, who uh, probably most famous for directing Capturing the Freedmans, uh, sits down and interviews a man named Robert Durst, who uh, in the 80s was investigated for the in the disappearance of his wife, and Jarecki made a film version of this a few years ago called All Good Things, uh, which starred Ryan Gosling and, and Kirsten Dunst. Um, and Robert Durst saw the film and thought it was fairly even-handed, and so he said he would sit down with Andrew Jarecki and talk about his the the disappearance of his wife and his experience being the chief suspect in that case, but also his being the chief su- uh, chief suspect in the murder of a friend of his who people think helped him cover up the death of his wife and uh, the death of his neighbour when he basically went on the lam and hid in Texas dressing as a woman under an assumed name and then shot his neighbour and then chopped him up and threw him into the river. And he's been on trial for at least two of those crimes and not been found guilty. Mm. Uh, and so it's been this whole thing where you're going into the, further into this guy's past and being presented all this crazy evidence and essentially, you know, watching it and thinking, oh, this guy's killed three people. There's kind of no, or at least two of them. He's def- he definitely killed the one he shot and chopped up because he admitted to that, but then they said that it was, uh, that then in court it was like ruled as an accidental death. Um, which is, you know, obviously insane because of the details of it. But um, today, uh, he was rearrested for the crimes. Um, partly, it seems, in due to the evidence that was dug up by the documentary series that he agreed to appear in. Hmm. Uh, and it's just kind of a fascinating result of this because obviously there have been documentaries like that have done a similar thing in the past. The Fin Blue Line we've talked about before, a film that exonerated someone of a crime but this is obviously going in entirely the other direction the, the documentary shone light on this case over it's six weeks that it's been on the air and tonight the finale, finale airs so everyone's been joking about how the new orleans police have spoiled the end of the jinx <laughs> by actually arresting him um but yeah it's just it's just really fascinating result to it because my sense watching it was that you we would not get any new evidence will we not get closer just be exploring this guy's weird and terrifying life but then it has actually it does seem to have had a, a real uh, effect on the the, the case itself mm. and we're kind of getting a lot of that uh, now with kind of serial um, mm. which is something we haven't talked about on on, on this show which is something that uh, I know we both uh, kind of listened to and enjoyed um, but um, was the jinx kind of like not greenlit because obviously it's been going on for a while, but kind of uh, successful in the wake of things like Serial and kind of uh, bringing uh, kind of true crime stuff to uh, the public's attention. It's not been an obsession in the same way that Serial has. Um, it's not be- because uh, obviously everyone can listen to a podcast, not everyone can watch HBO. Mm. Um, but it definitely, I think it definitely has benefited in, purely in the fact that every article about the jinx says that it's like cereal. <laughs> so I think that, that it has probably gained a lot of attention purely for those comparisons. And then there has been a lot of uh there's been a lot of discussion about just about the Jurecki's approach to the material and you know it's certainly at the beginning people saying that it's very compelling, but are we just watching a guy kind of 
gloat about the fact that he, you know, has been responsible for these deaths. Or not gloat, but kind of denying it in a way that makes you think, yeah, he clearly did it, and he's just trying to spin his own narrative. Mm. Um, and he's ended up being a lot more uh, complicated than that, you know, in a way that's very, uh, very, it has been very compelling to watch week to week. Um, I had never heard of the Jinx until uh, Twitter uh, kind of exploded uh, earlier today. Mm. Um, and then even then the kind of details were kind of patchy. I thought Fred Durst had something to do with it. Um, <laughs> and I didn't really know what was going on. And I'm glad you cleared that up for me now because, like you say, not everyone can watch HBO. Although they have announced this week that they're doing a, basically a Netflix-style subscription service rather than the old uh, you, you can only watch it if you've got cable. Yeah, it's. I think that is is just a, a a huge obstacle to it. Also, the type of show it is, which is that it's a um, you know a, do- a documentary told over six episodes, and it's about a true crime thing. And at least initially, it didn't seem like it would be uh, too revelatory. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that is that has not been the case. It has had a like I say, it's had an actual impact. Um, it's just not as on its uh, on the surface, it didn't seem like it'd be something as easy to sell as you know Game of Thrones or whatever. You know, something that would be a much bigger show that HBO have. Um, I think that this uh, news is probably going to raise its profile quite a bit. Mm. Do you, yeah? Um, do you think that like that's going to be available outside of um, America? I'm kind of asking for a friend. Uh, I think it probably will do. I think certainly uh, it will probably get a much bigger push now because they can they can package it as being something that had this impact on the real world and on the actual case of Robert Durst. I think that his because his story seemed to be quite New York centric. They made a point to, uh, about it in I think in the first or second episode about how everyone in New York. Not everyone, but you know, he, Robert Durst is very much a character that people know in New York because his his it was a local story, the disappearance of his wife, and it was quite a big thing at the time. But he's not someone that's pride. This was terribly well known in the rest of the country. So I think it initially seemed quite provincial, but it seems to be uh, it seems to be getting more wider play now. Hmm. Um, go back to serial for a second. Um, what's what's happening with that? Is like, uh, oh, firstly, do you think he's guilty? I'm not sure. I don't think so, but it's very, very hard to tell. The evidence is kind of very seems to go either way. The only thing that I'm certain of is that he didn't get a fair trial. Mm. So even if he did do it, he was railroaded in a yeah. way that uh, should not have happened, and which does seem to be rooted in deeper causes of racism and just the uh, more just the the desire of the Baltimore police department to resolve a crime um in the quickest and easiest way possible hmm um yeah i'm starting to get the suspicion that he did it yeah i kind of do get that feeling as well but it's so hard to tell at this point it's hard to tell if his guilt really matters when you consider how badly the whole thing was mishandled by everyone involved yeah 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 it's just that well, that's why it's kind of shone the light on that uh, that they could actually um, convict someone based on such uh, kind of uh, flimsy evidence, and then to hear 
you know, a prosecutor and a cop both say in the program, you know, I've seen worse trials go <laughs> go mm. before a jury, which is terrifying. Yeah, it definitely does play into certainly a fear that I've always had of um, being wrongfully commit, uh, convicted for a crime and how easy it is for details to be spun to make it seem like a cast iron uh, case of guilt as opposed to a situation where there is so much reasonable doubt that you can hardly imagine uh, it being, you know, a definitive case of guilt of someone being declared guilty. Mm. Yeah, don't be like picking up any speeding tickets, Ed. I don't want you like <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to see you be a kind of victim of miscarriage of justice. They'll use people like you in prison for currency, Ed. I'm really, <laughs> I'm kind of sorry to kind of, uh, uh, kind of tell you that, but it's true. Um, yeah, anyway, serial. Yeah, not really sure I was going with that. Oh, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, is is has there been kind of any further developments since the podcast finished? Because that podcast was huge. They are, as last I checked, they are definitely planning to do a second one, but because uh, it takes so long to research these these cases, it will probably be a while before we actually hear it. I'd be very surprised if we hear a second one before the year is out. Right. Um, and but you know. Because there's also there's anticipation now, whereas before it was something that came kind of out of nowhere, and you know took everyone by storm. So I think they'll be wanting to try and you know pick the right case to uh, investigate. Um, do you think that we'll have a, like a kind of season one point five where we kind of find out what's happened to Adnan and Jay and all those people? Uh, I would, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they do that, especially like you say, similarly to the Jinx, it's seems to have had an impact in getting him a uh, new trial or at the very least uh his new uh his new hearing sorry not a new trial he's getting a a hearing the fact that he's getting that is now kind of entertainment news in a way that leaves a kind of a weird queasy feeling in my stomach but um Mm. but you know the fact that it is a high profile thing so it it wouldn't surprise me if they do a follow-up at some point Mm. It's weird that like I'm rewatching um, season four of The Wire currently, mm-hmm. um, and there's you know Lester and and the bunk are uh, on the the kind of uh, the case of uh, the ongoing murders in season four, which is the bodies that are being dumped in the vacant houses. Yeah, um, and there's a bit where they go to Leakin Park and uh, they have a quick look around, and then bunk saying Leakin Park, uh, you know where Baltimore goes to kind of. Uh, uh, kind of bury their forgotten dead that people they never want to be found again and I'm just like mm. oh that's got a new kind of unsavoury complexion on it now after cereal yeah I think uh, there's probably a lot of stuff like that <laughs> if you really dig into it the, uh, the the sordid and horrible history of Baltimore's murders it's probably mm. a lot of things which are given a new uh, a new twist from cereal really kind of digging into that uh, that whole subculture yeah, absolutely. Um, well, going from the kind of brutal realism, like realism of uh, kind of Baltimore and murders um, to a big kind of week for Star Wars announcements. Mm. Um, there's been a couple this week that I kind of missed. Um, firstly, uh, I didn't know if you know this, but Ryan Johnson is directing episode eight. That's a uh, uh, that's now been confirmed. Uh, only uh, what like eight months after. You know, we first found out about it. Um, and also the first spin-off's got a title and we can probably kind of work out what it's going to be about. Yeah, it's uh, it's called Rogue One. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess it's just going to be about someone running away and being going rogue for two hours. Yeah. Hopefully they'll just be in like a single location hiding out. It'll be a bit cheap. Mm-hmm. They've got to save all their budget for the main ones. Um, but yeah, it was really very. I do like the idea actually of it being a spin-off based entirely around Felicity Jones, who I think is a very talented actress. Mm. Uh, and um, you know, it's nice to see a Star Wars film based about around a female character, which is a, a rarity to say the least. Mm. Um, and you know, I think with the Daisy Ridley character from Force Awakens seeming to be a kind of uh, a fairly central part of the uh, trilogy. It could be like, you know, a bit of a corner's been turned. Well, you'd hope so. Um, it certainly seems... Like, I, I I never felt that the original series was particularly uh, just for boys. You know, there are plenty of women who like Star Wars, and, you know, because it's kind of very, uh, very fun series of films but the uh the prequel series didn't have the best female characters it has to be said mm, it's the best characters full stop yeah so i think it definitely feels like they should kind of uh arrest that and try and give us at least one female character as good as princess leia yeah um yeah i kind of agree with that um but yeah it's i mean are you excited about kind of this expanded universe of of uh, of Star Wars with you know spin-off films meaning that there's going to be a Star Wars film pretty much every year for forever now not as excited as I would have been when I was say 15 <laughs> or mm. when when I was reading all of the expanded universe novels um and the and you know now having read a lot of those expanded universe novels a lot of those stories don't really need to be told mm. um I would hope that they'd be good and that they find new stories to tell but I'm still I think any enthusiasm has to be uh, tempered by, you know, the caveat of will episode seven turn out to be good. Mm. Like if if episode seven is is really good, if it f- forms the Iron Man of this whole thing, then you know that seems like it could be it could be good. Then because they're obviously paying a lot of attention to try and make these films as good as entertaining as possible. If it's you know completely horrible and a kind of a rancid horrible experience then uh, my enthusiasm will fall down. I do like I do like that they've confirmed that Ryan Johnson is the uh, writer-director, even though, like you say, it's something that I was kind of known about for a very, very long time, um, to the extent that I didn't realise it hadn't been officially announced. Yeah. It's kind of weird for them to have, like, you know, even though it's out there, to not confirm it until so many so months later. It's crazy. Mm, I think... For a very, I think the whole thing was they they sort of announced that he was going to be the director, and it was kind of, I think the wording must have been really vague as to whether or not he was writing it as well, because there was also talk that he was going to be writing episodes eight and nine, um, and that he was going to kind of be responsible for carrying the whole thing forward himself, you know, as as kind of the in the same way that Joss Whedon oversaw most of the Marvel films post uh, Avengers in some way mm. um, maybe that's the, that's the role that he's going into which I think would be very exciting and not something I would have predicted um, even you know when he when Looper came out was a big hit mm. 
here's something I learned about the new Star Wars films today, which kind of uh, puts me on a little bit of the back foot, mm-hmm. as it were, is um, that uh, even after they started filming, um, both Kathleen Kennedy and J.J. Abrams asked for the film to be put back. Because um, I, I learned that after finding out that the Ryan Johnson episode, no, sorry, the, is it the right, hang on, one, either one of Rogue One or, yeah, I think it's Rogue One. Rogue One is scheduled for release on the day that J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy wanted for Star Wars Episode Eight. Oh, right, okay. That doesn't particularly fill me with a lot of... Because I think the thing that I'm kind of worried about, the the only thing really that I'm worried about, uh, episode seven wise, uh, I think I like the cast. I like, you know, how it feels from that one minute and twelve seconds or whatever we've seen, and from the people involved behind the camera, is it all happened to seem it all seemed to happen quite quickly, which mm-hmm. is quite always, never a good sign. Yeah, I think. It's 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 always very hard to tell with these sort of things whether or not the changes in release date or whatever are to do with a film going badly or them just trying to find the right time to release it. Mm. Um, I'd err on the side of I'd err on the side of caution in that I think, or, or on the side of optimism, I should say, in that I think that this is such a huge endeavor that they're probably going to try and put as much attention to detail and to try and make it as good as possible and put as much work into it. Yeah. But the, like the idea of, as they say, as of putting out like three Star Wars films in something like 18 months, whatever it is, it still, it does feel kind of worrying. Like we're going from uh, famine to feast much too quickly and everyone will just end up being sick of it all. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the worry. And it's not just the films as they were getting, you know, TV series and uh, comics and everything that goes along with it. It's uh, going to be kind of Star Wars saturation, but hey, that's what happens when you sell your soul to Disney. Uh, yeah, they said there was going to be something like 20 books to bridge Return of the Jedi with uh, The Force Awakens. Holy but, shit. But the, the when you break down into it, it's something like 20 books, but some of them are going to, that's including, like I think, like sticker books for kids and things like that, rather mm. than... 20 full-length novels. Yeah, that will only be disregarded in kind of like 20 years' time when they try <laughs> and reboot the series and kind of undo everything they've done. Because, you know, that's the uh, that's the cycle we're involved in now. Well, uh, that kind of cautious optimism uh, <laughs> brings us to the end of, of this uh, particular show, this kind of weird free-form experiment um, that I've enjoyed, personally, um, talking about some things that have... Uh, uh, been kind of bothering us and uh, and also things that we kind of might be excited about um, so be on the lookout for another one of these episodes uh, when we kind of uh, haven't got anything else to talk about <laughs> um, because we may as well just clutter, clutter up the internet with one more podcast uh, it can't hurt um, if you've enjoyed this show or any of your others our others uh, then please do uh, subscribe to us on, on the iTunes uh, find us on the Facebook and uh, follow us on Twitter um and yeah we'll be back next week with what we're doing next week Ed, you know uh i'm not sure i know in two weeks it's the susan sarandon episode but i'm not sure what's on the docket for next week yes um it could be another one of these <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes until next time it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me <laughs>